Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I am a licensed nutritionist and an exercise physiology professor, and I'm a bodybuilding enthusiast. We don't have Phil and Rob with us today. This is uh, going to be a little bit brief and delayed Christmas episode, so I apologize for that. But uh, we have with us today uh, Nick Bird, who's a muscle physiology researcher, uh, nutrition background as far as that's concerned. I'm going to let Nick introduce himself, uh, and then we'll get to a little bit of uh, news. So, Nick, if you could just bring listeners up to speed uh, since you've been on the show before about your background and, and what you're up to right now, because it's pretty exciting. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so, Lonnie, I originally started my graduate work at Ball State University, um, working in the uh, it's a pretty well-known uh, human performance lab there under the, uh, the <clears throat> being mentored by Todd Traffy. Um, I then moved north with Stuart Phillips, um, continuing to use stable isotopes of amino acids to study uh, muscle protein synthesis after various exercise and um, nutritional paradigms. Um, now I'm over at Maastricht University within uh, the M3 research group led by Professor Luke Van Loon. Again, I'm continuing to use stable isotopes of amino acids with the same common theme of studying uh, muscle protein synthesis after various uh, different nutritional and exercise interventions. Right on. Um, and listeners, if you heard the first episode with Nick, you'll realize uh, Nick, uh, because of his academic associations, um, you know, we're going to press him a little bit for, you know, as much information as we can. We'll learn as much as we can and maybe get some inside tips as to what's going on in these labs because, uh, Nick, as you were just saying, of course, with, if it's exercise or nutrition interventions or even how they interact, um, you know, muscle protein synthesis has uh, moved on to stable isotopes in a lot of ways. And maybe I'll even have you, uh, when we start the topic of the day, explain why stable isotopes are valuable compared to something like nitrogen balance or, you know, maybe some of the limitations that you, we saw in, in decades past. Um, but in any case, um, on with the news. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Just quickly here, um, there's two bits of news. One is science-related, and the other is practice-related. This first one is about coffee drinking. Uh, there's a new paper uh, that was commented on in the at least the U.S. edition of the Huffington Post, uh, and it says coffee drinking is linked with lower oral cancer death risk. Um, now, this is epidemiology, so it's not cause and effect, and listeners, you've heard me go on about that before, but... The point being is coffee, says, is one of the most widely consumed beverages in the world, um, and it's not just caffeine, of course. People consume it as a caffeine source, but there's antioxidants, polyphenols, different biologically active compounds in there. And this new uh, paper actually found a 49% reduction in death from, uh, I believe it was oral and pharyngeal cancers, in people who drink four or more cups of caffeinated coffee a day. So I think people like to hear when they when they hear coffee or chocolate science being beneficial because it's it's something that they enjoy anyway. Um, but in, in any case, um, interesting study that drinking coffee can do this, uh, or at least is suspect in helping reduce your risk. Uh, and it says actually decaf, there was a weak association, not quite as strong. So maybe in, in the way that they process it, they lose some of those polyphenols or some of those benefits uh, so anyway, that was uh, one paper, again, that was just, just published in the American Journal of Epidemiology. And our other little bit of news is practice-related. This is from one of my recent graduate students in nutrition, uh, Laura, who's in medical school now. And it's from CoachCal.com. He's from the University of Kentucky. And she sent it to me because she knew I, I've seen similar things in practice over the years. Uh, and I'm just going to read you a little uh tidbit from his um, blog uh, slash article. It says, um, our players have actually lost weight since the beginning of the year. I've been on them about their conditioning, but part of the reason they're so exhausted is their energy levels have been low. And again, she, Laura sent me this because she knows that I would go back and forth with a lot of head coaches 
And a lot of coaches, if, if they're not up to speed on nutrition, they'll automatically make an assumption that if a, if an athlete is underperforming, uh, he's out of shape or, you know, she's out of shape. They need more laps, more work. Well, that could be the opposite of what they need. They could be under recovered or overreaching. Um, and of course, a coach's job is to apply a, a training stimulus and even overreaching in some ways. But the point being is maybe it's because they're not getting enough fuel. And it says, uh, you could say that they're fatigued for a number of reasons. But one of them is that they aren't eating enough. Under current rules, if a young man eats at our training table and wants to take some food home for later, he can't. It's either eat it there or go hungry the rest of the night. Um, it says we have a kitchen uh, that should be open for these kids whenever they want to eat. What do they uh, What do they do if they go home and they want a sandwich at night? They walk down to the kitchen and get it, at least in you know an ideal world. He says, uh, my own son does this at home, but here under the current rules at the university, we can't. Um, it says the response we get is, well, they can eat, they can eat whenever. They just have to go about it like a normal student. And, uh, Coach Cal here, he says, I hate to break it to you, but these aren't normal students. We ask a lot of them and we demand a huge chunk of their schedules. They aren't afforded the time that normal students have. So he goes on to say that, not to mention that, but normal university students may have to eat three times a day and, He's familiar with athletes needing to eat five, six, even seven times a day just to be an energy balance or certainly energy surplus if they're trying to gain. So I think it's a good point. Uh, I'll point you to uh, it's John Calipari, CoachCal.com. I'm, I'm not really familiar, but I think this is a very interesting piece that he's got here because it really underscores the idea that nutrition is inextricably connected with training and the kinds of performance and gains that I think coaches are looking for. Uh, and, you know, maybe this is one of the things where resistance athletes are even more in tuned uh, maybe than certain other kinds of athletes. But that's just speculation. Anyway, so we brought uh, Nick on. Thanks again for being on, Nick. Yeah, no problem. And our topic of the day is uh, optimizing muscle protein synthesis with science. And, again, Nick's going to be really one of the guys to go to for this kind of uh, methodology. Um, and so let's start with that, Nick, if you would. Um, Maybe just explain, when you say you're, you've done a lot of work with stable isotopes, yeah. what's valuable about this as far as studying, um, you know, gains when it comes to nutrition and exercise? Yeah, yeah. so a stable isotope, I should, um, I should highlight that is not a radioactive isotope. So we, we use stable isotopes, and simply it's what occurs is we do not do this uh, within the laboratory, but uh, in another lab, they add an extra neutron to it to make it heavy. So we use a stable isotope. Um, in a lot of cases, phenylalanine or, or leucine. Um, and again, so these, you know, in lay terms, I guess they're heavy. Um, so we infuse these heavy amino acids into circulation into a, into a human subject. Over time, these stable isotopes or these heavy amino acids are incorporated into muscle protein. So the unique part of it is, is that since it's labeled, um, we can actually take a muscle biopsy and then detect or measure changes in enrichment. So obviously after exercise or nutrition, you stimulate muscle protein synthesis. And so what we detect is how much of that label or that heavy amino acid has been incorporated into skeletal muscle protein. So by manipulating different nutritional and exercise paradigms, we try to maximize um, how much of that label is incorporated the um, the beauty of it is is that it's a, it's a direct measurement of muscle protein synthesis. So we're actually, as I as I suggested earlier, we're actually detecting changes in amino acids well over time. So it's it's a very direct measurement, a highly uh, sensitive measurement. Um, so that's I mean that's in general what we're doing in the lab. So I I should mention what we're doing now over in, in Maastricht, um, and I believe some researchers in France do it also. But, you know, as I highlighted, we usually use an intravenous infusion um, to introduce these stable isotopes in, into, uh, into a human subject. Now we became a little more creative in how we can deliver the amino, uh, the stable isotope in the sense here at, uh, in the Netherlands, um, we actually infuse a cow with a large amount of uh, stable isotopes of amino acids. These stable isotopes are incorporated into milk protein. So the actual stable isotope is now in, t in the milk. Now we, oh. now we can give the milk that is labeled 
with stable isotope to the human subjects. The subjects can drink it, and now we can directly assess. So how many of the, the labels from the drink are incorporated into the, into the skeletal muscle protein? So it's a very powerful tool, and it's very simplistic in nature because, you know, if you manipulate exercise or whatever and you, you end up getting more of the label from the drink um, into the skeletal muscle protein, you can you can be pretty sure. Well, that's in a pretty effective paradigm to increase muscle protein accretion. So that's right. one thing we're doing here. And we also now we butcher the cow and we can have intrinsically labeled meat. So now we got some pretty cool tools to introduce the stable isotope into uh, to a human. Um, and so that's some of the work I'm doing over here in the Netherlands. That's awesome. Uh, I wasn't aware that you're able to do it like that. That's we we uh, experimented a little bit in graduate school with uh, N15 glycine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know those were little solutions that we would drink and try to get into the equilibrium and things like that. You know, as opposed to just you're just talking about literally directly going from labeled food to human muscle. Yeah, exactly. Um, now the obviously you got to be able to produce a product that has enough that's highly labeled. So you know when the subject drinks the drink, you can actually detect the label from the drink into the into skeletal muscle protein so we can do that with milk but since skeletal muscle turns over so slow i.e the the meat from the cow it is only valuable to study protein digestion and amino acid absorption kinetics so using this intrinsic labeled food i.e milk and meat we can see how you know when a subject drinks the meal how is the gut interacting so how much is that actually uh you know is the the splanchnic tissue extracting the amino acids and how much are making it into circulation. And obviously how is that impacting the subsequent muscle protein synthetic response? So we're getting pretty comprehensive and not only studying at the level of the muscle. Now we're starting to, with this intrinsically labeled food um, study, you know, how is the gut being affected? Cause we know, right. cause we know after exercise, especially at increasing exercise intensities, you actually can blunt, protein digestion and amino acid absorption. So we can start studying, you know, okay, what's the effects of exercise intensity per se on, you know, protein digestion and amino acid absorption, how much of the amino acids are making into circulation. And then as I just highlighted the subsequent response. So some pretty comprehensive work we're start, we're starting to move to, and it's a uh, pretty exciting times, at least for, for us in muscle physiology. Right. Now, let me ask you this. I, I think it was in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Uh, it might have been about a year ago. I think at rest, is, doesn't the gut e- extract and more or less use about half yeah. of the amino acids? Yeah, you're exactly right. right. Yeah, about, right. about 50, 50% makes it into uh, circulation. So that's, uh, that's exactly what, what, what you said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, okay. One more thing for listeners before we, we'll take a very quick break and then we'll come back with some uh, meat and potato kind of questions here. Um, Maybe just recap for everybody, like if somebody says they're in positive nitrogen balance or if somebody says, you know, they have whole body increased protein synthesis, um, maybe just, you know, recap what what stable isotopes can do with synthesis and breakdown and how that's different from the black box approach of nitrogen balance and whatnot. Yeah, so nitrogen balance, you're simply looking at, you know, (laughs) nitrogen, nitrogen in, nitrogen out, and a lot of times you're... You're looking at it in urea, um, which is which is the whole body, and we know that skeletal muscle. Sometimes the whole body measurements do not reflect what's going on um, in the skeletal muscle. I mean, they tend to reflect, especially after exercise, because that's the primary tissue being stimulated. Um, but instead of having the block black box approach and assuming that what you're seeing at the whole body level is being driven by changes in skeletal muscle. Stable isotopes allow us to directly study skeletal muscle. So it's a direct measurement of muscle protein synthesis. Right. Now, and as far as protein synthesis versus breakdown, it's really the, the muscle protein, protein synthesis side that changes most with the, like the nutritional interventions, that, correct? That's, that's correct. And I, um, I should mention, you know, admittedly, you know, in, in healthy young individuals, that tends to be the, the case. But in reality, we're actually not very good at looking at the breakdown side of things. Um, okay. We're really good at looking at synthesis. But based on the data we have, um, roughly the changes in uh, 
skeletal muscle net protein balance, that is the difference between protein synthesis and breakdown, is primar- primarily driven by changes in muscle protein synthesis. Thus, you know, if we're able to positively affect the protein synthesis side of things, we can be pretty positive that we're shifting into a, a state of muscle protein accretion. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to take a very quick break for some announcements. And when we get back, I've got five specific questions that's really going to um, involve some of these methodologies that we've just been discussing in uh, try to apply it as best we can to real world settings. Uh, now, I usually don't like that term because, of course, science is it's just observing and recording the real world as much as best as possible. But there are a couple of things that we've talked about before. For example, the the lighter load, 30 percent of one rep max kinds of uh, high rep training and, and those sorts of things. And, you know, I think athletes might wonder or even question how can that maximize muscle accretion? You know, you're telling me to lift light and I'm going to get the most hypertrophy. You know, there are different things that we just want to um, learn about. So we'll be back in just a minute. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. And on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, We'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. I can't stop feeling Some of us don't understand How lucky we are To be living in this Hi listeners, this is Rob Fortress Fortney. I'm here to remind you that as the holiday season approaches and your thoughts turn to giving, we like you to keep Iron Rating in your thoughts. Every week for four years now, it's been our privilege to bring you weekly news, experts, and gym talk. Did you know that now roughly 20,000 brothers and sisters of Iron count on us for these things? Of course, not everyone can afford to be a supporting member or a significant one-time donor. But for those of you willing to pitch in, $4 per month or $50 just once, we're about to sweeten the deal. Become a supporting member or major donor between now and January 2013, and a limited number of you will receive a gift worth over $20. And we will never forget our existing supporters. Simply email me via ironradio.org, and I'll send you a free seminar from Dr. Lowry on how to significantly and realistically boost your testosterone levels. Help your iron brothers and sisters who cannot pitch in but deserve better internet programming in our sports. And happy holidays. Hello, Iron Radio listeners. This is Dr. Lowry. I just want to offer an update on the protein and resistance exercise book that you hear about in ads at the end of the show. The publisher and I realize that the textbooks have become expensive. This one's $99. So individual electronic chapters have been made available for $20. US As with Iron Radio, my primary drive here is to get valid, reliable information into the hands of fellow lifters. So if you simply Google CRC Press Protein, you'll find the page where the book is sold. By clicking on ebook purchase at the right, you'll be taken to a page with free introductory parts of the book, as well as each chapter in electronic PDF format. There's also links uh, to other sources in this version. So whether you're interested in an academic heavy hitter like Dr. Peter Lemon sharing protein's history and strength training, or you're a biochem nerd like me and you want to just look at chapter 2 on protein synthesis and breakdown, or if you want to cut to the chase and get to a chapter on using protein weight control or case studies, you can now do so for just 20 bucks. So please check out CRC Press Protein and see which chapter topic may interest you. Thanks. Thanks. 
weekly fix of Iron Radio. In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, everyone, we're back with this Christmas episode. Uh, Rob and Phil cannot be here, but we're going to get one out. We haven't missed a week for four years, and we're not going to start now. So we've got uh, muscle physiology researcher Nick Bird uh, on the phone from overseas, and we're going to ask him some very specific questions regarding uh, muscle protein synthesis, how to train to maximize it, how to eat to maximize it, uh, and things of that nature. So my first question is what I was alluding to just before break, which is, how do you think that 30% of one rep max, I know some of your work uh, with this, suggests that you can actually maximize muscle protein synthesis um, by doing these 30% lighter loads for, you know, 20, 23 repetitions, whatever it comes out to on average. Um, how does that apply, you know, in sort of a chronic training, you know, for an athlete? Are, I mean, are you actually suggesting they should use 30% loads all the time if they want maximum hypertrophy? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, this is obviously a, a topic that I encounter um, a lot with athletes um, and, and bodybuilders. Highly interested. I mean, well, I guess bodybuilders kind of use that kind of protocol or have been in years past. Um, the short end of it is, or we don't have to make it short, we can make it long, but, um, you know, that the message from that work whenever was suggesting that it's better or you should be doing this, um, no, I think what we're trying to suggest is, hey, here's an alternative approach. Um, we were actually testing a hypothesis that, you know, what is the principal driver of muscle protein synthesis following exercise? Um, what's a common characteristic of lifting a heavy weight is the fact that it induces, uh, causes you to recruit a large amount of muscle fibers, specifically the type 2 muscle fibers. And we know from particular training studies that these type two fibers are the ones that are highly responsive to resistance exercise insofar as um, accreting, you know, growing bigger and also getting, getting stronger. So a good thing about lifting heavy weights is that you're able to maximally activate your muscle fiber. Well, what's another way you can do that? Well, the short end of it is, is that you can take a lighter weight and simply perform more repetitions because as the type one muscle fibers start to fatigue and start depleting the muscle glycogen, you got to recruit other muscle fibers to maintain the muscle tension until in the end, you're going to get a fully uh, activated muscle fiber and a huge, uh, not a huge, but a, a big response at the, the muscle protein synthetic level. So we developed a thesis that, you know, it's not, exercise load that's driving post-exercise increases in muscle protein synthesis, but rather your ability to recruit these type 2 muscle fibers. And if you are able to do that, you can induce a relatively large anabolic response. Now, now of course, <laughs> you can't simply pick up a pencil or just move your arm up and down till it fatigues. There are 30%. There is still load on the muscle. So that's equating to roughly 20 to 25 repetitions. In our hands, you know, you can achieve fatigue within 20 to 25 repetitions within, you know, less than, you know, 45 to 60 seconds. So that's still very much fundamentally a resistance exercise stimulus. Um, we did some follow-up work using those low loads. And what we did was we extended the time under tension, um, with these low loads. So an individual came in and they performed resistance exercise where each repetition um, was performed in a very slow manner, but we kept exercise volume down. So the, in the sense that each exercise set was taking roughly two minutes to induce fatigue, but they were, were going really slow. So within seven repetitions. Um, and we found that when the exercise set was too long a duration, you actually started stimulating mitochondria and sarcoplasmic proteins, so more of the energy-producing units of skeletal muscle, and you moved away from the myofibrillar proteins, which are the, oh. 
or the force producing units. So there is something that's keep in mind is that, of course, you know, training is very specific. Um, that if you do an endurance exercise stimulus, you are going to see an endurance exercise response. Um, well, uh, Nick, let me just go back to that for a second. So this is the the first time I've actually heard a scientist actually say this, if, if this is what I'm, I'm gathering, that you can overdo time under tension. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's um, work that's published in the, the Journal of Physiology. That's correct. Okay. Yeah, so mm-hmm. exactly. So, again, we were going after the thesis that, okay, activation is driving these post-exercise increases in muscle protein synthesis. So we were just, just like the first study, as you're well aware of, took low loads and we had to achieve, well, we, the subject achieved fatigue within 20 to 25 repetitions. So now we were like, well, they're performing a lot of exercise volume per se, just by nature, because you've got to perform more repetitions to induce fatigue with those low loads as, a, as compared to the heavier weights. But what if we decrease repetitions and instead just increase the time under tension and you're going to if you perform each repetition slower i mean it's it's logical that the number of repetitions you're you can perform are also going to decrease so in these subjects they were performing roughly seven repetitions and it took them about two minutes like i said to induce fatigue and in that in that study design we found the opposite of our hypothesis was that well, okay? So it's not it's not only <laughs> inducing a large amount of muscle fiber activation um, because we did we were successful in doing that, but since time under tension was so long, we started stimulating the like I said the energy producing units of skeletal muscle as opposed to myofibrillar proteins. Um, so that is telling us that okay, so time under tension does matter. Um, we do see that these low loads are highly anabolic towards myofibrillar proteins, provided they're performed within that 20 to 25 repetition range, probably even 30 or 40. I mean, but in our hands, we always used a 20 to 25 RM, and you can induce fatigue within 60 seconds. Now, right. now let me ask you this, because um, a significant number of our listeners are they're powerlifters. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, powerlifters, they'll do speed work. They'll sort of do the opposite. So, Again, I think uh, just to emphasize, this is very specific to a hypothesis, right? So yeah. you are not you're not speculating that all bodybuilders and powerlifters should go do no. slow, light <laughs> repetition. No, no, no. Because uh, actually, I think they'll find that they're not stimulating myofibrillar protein protein synthesis, which I think is highly relevant towards a resistance training athlete or a powerlifter, because that's the force producing unit of skeletal muscle. Um, we were after a hypothesis, as I was describing. Is it the complete activation of all the skeletal muscles in your fibers? Is that a principal driver of post-exercise muscle protein synthesis? Um, that was what we were after. And we're not saying that lifting heavy weights is you should not do it. No, it's highly effective. I mean, there's I actually lift heavier weights in the gym. It's just I prefer it. <laughs> okay, well, let me let me then let me ask you this because. Um, I'm interested in sort of undulating periodization, you know, periods where you'll go heavy for lower reps and then every third workout, maybe you do a lighter, you know, even a 20, 25 rep sort of thing, you know, spare your joints, maybe, you know, um, turn on protein synthesis, muscle protein synthesis in a different way. How do you incorporate this? So I'm, now I'm going to ask you to speculate a little, right, away from the hypothesis. Yeah, because I know yeah, it's always yeah. dangerous speculate versus demonstrate, yeah, right? But exactly. if you're going to speculate, how is somebody going to maximize their muscle protein synthesis with some of these new findings that lighter loads can do the job? No. Well, you know, the message we, we try to try to paint, um, the reason we developed this low load paradigm was the fact that when elderly go to the gym, they're highly intimidated um, by lifting these heavy weights. But the the current dogma is that heavier weights are superior for maximizing muscle hypertrophy. So we um, actually, you know, we ran a training study. Um, I'm not sure. If, uh, did you read that one, Lonnie, actually? What's, uh, so we actually carried out those acute findings to the long term. So we ran a – are you familiar with that work or not? Uh, I, I think so. Go ahead. Yeah, so we ran a um, – so we ran a training study following up our acute work. So keep in mind – that when we examine post-exercise muscle protein synthesis, that is 
an acute response. That's after one exercise bout. So the basic motto hypertrophy is that, you know, it provided you're chronically training. If those acute increases in muscle protein synthesis accumulate into a bigger muscle. So it provides us the framework for training studies. So that study gave us an indication, okay, these low loads appear to be highly effective after one single bout. Now let's run the training study to confirm our hypothesis. And, it, and I'll, there's a point behind this is why I want to tell you this. Um, so we ran a training study where we used a, within um, a unilateral model. So, you know, it's very, for science, it's very good because it's within, a, within subject design. So we had subjects trained with one leg, um, three sets of 80%, which equated to roughly um, 8 to 12 repetitions. The other leg trained with low loads, again, using that 20 to 25 repetition uh, rep range. Um, and then they trained for 10, 10 weeks. And at the end of those 12 weeks, or 10 weeks, I'm sorry, we assessed um, fiber type cross-sectional area, so both type 1 and type 2 cross-sectional area. And we also looked at um, using via MRI thigh, thigh muscle cross-sectional area. So, the, so not only the single fiber size, but also the total size of the thigh. And another thing we did, of course, is look at muscle strength. So it's probably not entirely surprising that the guys training with those heavy weights or the leg that trained at the heavier loads were stronger than the guys who trained um, with the lighter weights. Sure. So that's, that's not, not, it's not surprising. But the good thing was our hypothesis was correct because across all those variables, so the type 1s, the type 2s, muscle fibers, and also the whole the overall size of the the thigh also got bigger, independent of load. So now we 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 have a good message here saying that okay, if you want to get stronger, of course you got to lift a bigger weight. You know, however, as from a uh, muscle size standpoint, it appears that low loads are equally effective. With training with those, but you know, and then okay, but it wasn't superior. It was it was equal, a similar amount of hypertrophy. Exactly, exactly. It was okay. it was equal in nature. Um, so I think an interesting thing is probably if you read that paper, it doesn't come out. So when I said to get stronger, you got to lift a heavier weight, but that's dynamic strength. So the actual dynamic one RM. So when you go into the gym, in this case, it was a leg extension, actually performing a leg extension. An interesting thing was when we tested MVC or maximal voluntary contraction, that's, you know, where you just grab a hold of something, it's a static movement, and you just pull against it with as much force as you can. So that's something that neither condition got practice at. We found that maximal MVC was the same between the low loads and the high loads. So that's, I mean, that's, again, showing that, well, that when you lift, you need the practice, the actual movement of, of lifting heavy weights to get stronger. So, so specificity still reigns, yeah, but I, with, a no, with a novel task, exactly. you have as much meat on one leg as you do on the other. Yeah, no, so that was very neat because it's showing that, you know, when you do an unpracticed measurement of muscle force, they were the same, but something more functional. I mean, rarely in life are we doing NVCs unless you're pushing against a brick wall, which I don't think we would do very often, um, at least not my activities of daily living. Sure. <laughs> but who knows? You never know, right? But you don't need to train with these heavy weights routinely to grow bigger muscle. You can simply, you know, you can train with these lower loads to failure, but make sure you're incorporating you know, some heavier weights in there um, over a training program to make sure you you got dynamic uh, maximal strength um, up there. So, I mean, that's kind of getting after your question. You know, when you modulate training, yes, I think it's very important to modulate uh, how you train, um, especially as we get older. It, it sometimes can hurt to chronically lift heavy weights. So our message is, you know, you can you can use lighter weights, still be highly effective, but you know, it's not a terrible idea to also do some 
heavier weightlifting just so you're maintaining your 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 muscle strength. Okay, Nick, let me ask you personally, how do you do it? How do you incorporate these? <laughs> do it, yeah. So I that's the problem, huh? The the physiologists have a hard time translating science into practice. And I, I, I probably also fail at that sometimes. Um, well, I mean, I train, uh, I often say now I'm just in there for some movement. Um, but I, I still do the big lifts. I, I just, I train roughly, I try to get a, a session in 35, 40 minutes. So I go after the money lifts. So I'm lifting uh, deadlifts, which... I'm lifting pretty heavy and doing squats at a higher repetition range. I'm I'm just in there moving anymore, Lonnie, to be honest. Yeah. But I'm focusing on on the on the good stuff. Um, but I I think my serious training days, uh, especially over here in the Netherlands, um, which you probably would find amusing, that it took me. I probably found the only squat rack in the whole city. So <laughs> you can imagine that it's not a you know it's not a common for. Uh, for individuals over here to resistance train. Um, right. So I've, okay. Well, I've, yeah. you know, and I understand people have priorities. Obviously, you're uh, you're over in Europe with a very specific goal, you know, and it's it's not to become Mister Something or other, you know, <laughs> at this point. But the, I guess I, I was just curious as as far as you know, the lighter load stuff. You know, I think I could see how someone like you who sees it firsthand, it, it could start to influence the way you train yourself. You know, you know like. You know, you know, what I think about Lonnie is that, you know, I mean, I can remember back in the days when I was really serious uh, about training and I, I used to be into powerlifting and all that stuff. I would walk into a, a hotel gym or something where you're not at your, your company, no, not at your usual training place. And you walk into a hotel gym and they got just smaller dumbbells. And I would almost think, what's the point? You know, mm-hmm. because uh, without the big weights, I'm not going to have a response. But now, I mean, that's change i mean that's the biggest thing with me i'm like oh well i can you know if i happen to be at a place where i can't lift a heavier weight um you know i can still get a big benefit from these lower loads and that's a good point yeah so that's yeah. that's where i from a mental perspective for me that that's where it comes it comes in handy and you know from a practical standpoint if you would have saw some of the individuals in my in my studies um it's a lot of work to do these low loads till failure i mean these it's it's a challenge, um, mm-hmm. you know, because you are trying to induce fatigue. So that from uh, when you know the guys would always say they preferred doing the eight to ten repetition range and rather the uh, the thirty repetition maximum. But it's it's just adding a new layer to somebody's training. We've shown it's highly effective, you know, and it's you know some lifts. I, I think it's it's very very good to do to do on now maybe uh, obviously like a deadlift or something. I would never perform 20 to 30 repetitions because I, you know, that's such a technical lift that your maybe your form will slide a little bit. But you know, on leg extension, even you know, a bench press, a leg press, something like that, I, I think it's a it's a great a great stimulus to use it on. Right. I'll tell you. Uh, and there, we've had strength coaches on the show before, and even the co-hosts will point out that there's a time, even for the strength focused athlete, even the power athlete, where they want a larger engine, you know, so rather than just working on something neural yeah. or yeah. skill or something like the neuromuscular function, they want hypertrophy, very much like an off-season bodybuilder might. And this seems to fit that bill if they're deloading the total amount of intensity, you know, the total poundage. This this would be a nice change of pace for a couple of weeks yeah. or if they <laughs> leave it in, you know, every so many sessions or what have you. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, 100%. It is it is a good thing. And it. I think the short end of it for your listeners is that our message never was that you shouldn't be lifting heavy weights. No, of course they're effective. Here's just an alternative approach to use, um, you know, in various situations, and it, it will work for you. Um, just just give it a try. Now, I should mention this is something that else that doesn't jump at these papers. So in that work, we used leg extension exercise. So I was very smart about the exercise I chose. Leg extension in itself is very occlusive. So you can induce fatigue within 20, 25 repetitions with roughly 30% of 1RM. What I mean, occlusive, meaning it occludes blood flow very nicely, um, and thus it hastens fatigue. Whereas with a, a bench press or even a leg press, you likely have to do maybe 50% of your RM to be able to 
induce fatigue within, you know, that 20 to 25 RM. So, Oh, see, now, that, this is exactly the kind of behind-the-scenes insight that I love to get, right? Because when people go, they do try to speculate and apply this. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah they're like, oh, well, that's, yeah, leg, I can see what you're saying is leg extensions, very different anatomically in blood flow from, like you said, a, a deadlift. Or a yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's, don't, <laughs> there's nothing magical about, I mean, nothing magical about 30%. Um, don't, don't think that's the magic number. Of course, if you're, like I highlighted, if you're doing an exercise and doing over a, a hundred repetitions and you should be a little ma- more ambitious. Um, but think about the rep range and, you know, also it's think about the exercise you're using, you know, as I highlighted that with 30% of your RM, you'll never be able to achieve fatigue within, I, I think, a reasonable manner using uh, on a leg press or a bench press or something. Mm-hmm. You know, and just anecdotally, it's interesting to, look at bodybuilding routines over the years where there'd be a lot of bodybuilders who they would do the money lift. Uh, they might do five sets, six, eight sets, whatever, of something like a squat, let's say, and then they'll burn out or rep out with leg yeah, extensions, exactly. you know, or leg curls or something like that. Yeah, yeah, you're 100% right. So, I mean, that's that's the, the short end of it. And um, as I mentioned, a lot of times I get uh, a lot of – catch a lot of heat, but it's not uh, – I think – you know, as you highlighted, you said it best. We were testing a hypothesis. That's what we were going after. We're not necessarily geared after turning the world upside down. We, uh, but it did happen to provide some really practical information, um, which we like to use in, you know, various for the elderly population Absolutely. and whatnot. Okay, well, there's so much to discuss. So I'm going to move on to a, a different question, more nutritionally related. Um, I, eventually, I want to. Before I let you go, I want to touch on the ibuprofen issue again one more time because you mentioned it last time. It was sort of a teaser, yeah. and there was some ibuprofen uh, in the news this week oh, okay. about uh, gut function, I think. But anyway, yeah. um, before I get to that, um, can you talk about? I've I've heard at conferences this discussion about refractoriness, about how, and to, to me, honestly, and maybe I'm missing something, but it seems almost obvious that. You consume a, a certain dose of protein, and muscle protein synthesis increases. Um, but that's not infinitely linear, right? Yeah, it's almost, exactly. you know what I mean? I mean, because what I'm hearing sometimes from some of these groups um, is that, oh, well, you know, at some point, a couple hours post-ingestion, protein synthesis goes down, even if you continue to consume protein, Um Okay, but to me that seems obvious. Otherwise, we'd all be eating – anybody who's interested in, in, in muscular gains would be eating as many grams of protein every day as they could, right? Infinite and linear. The more yeah, I exactly. eat, the more gets deposited. And, of course, that seems absurd. So um, can you explain a little bit to listeners about the timing issues? Like what's best for consuming, let's say, uh, if an optimal dose is 20 or 30 grams now, when do we do that again um, or can you take something like leucine between meals to somehow backdoor this refractoriness? Or can you comment yeah, on that? Yeah, of course. Um, so I, I think you, you, you highlighted what we've been trying to do is switch the paradigm from doing, um, trying to provide some daily protein recommendation. Of course, we, we feel that it's meal by meal. Um, you should be, we should be, you know, as a sports nutritionist, the 1.2, 1.7 grams, um, protein per kg a day um you know why why that is is true but athletes or just general individuals in themselves largely like to backload their calories and their protein intake or front load them but it's more important i think that we start prescribing protein requirements on a meal by meal basis and um so that work that you described where you know roughly 20 to what was 20 grams of protein after resistance exercise, maximize muscle protein synthesis. And that's been solidified. In that same study, they, uh, it was actually my, my good friend Dan Moore, who performed this, uh, once again up with Stuart Phillips. Um, when those subjects consumed 40 grams of protein, there was no further increase in muscle protein synthesis. But what did happen was the amino acids were being oxidized. Um, their listeners are wasted or used for energy. So you were no longer using those amino acids for building muscle protein, but were being shifted to or wasted. Um, right. Burning yeah, off the exactly. excess, so, so to speak. So that work established that 20 grams 
after resistance exercise maximizes muscle protein synthesis. Um, in 80 kilo individuals, <laughs> and that's always a big okay. one. So what happens if you're, you know, 100, 120 kilos? Does that same <laughs> response hold true? Probably not. You're probably going to need a little right. more, just as if you're mm-hmm. a little lighter, you're going to need a little less. Um, that work hasn't been done, but we've been trying to provide, uh, I think last year at ACSM, um, we gave some recommendations roughly looking at about point. So this is per meal. So one single meal, if your meal contains roughly 0.22 grams per kg of protein. Um, and you consume that amount of protein roughly five times a day with three to four hours in between each meal. From a scientific perspective, you have maximized your ability to create skeletal muscle protein. Now, that's interesting because for me, that's about 110 grams okay. a day. Yeah. So it's it's not an enormous no, amount. No, it's not. And now, you know, what we're starting to do here is we're trying to actually assess what is the impact of chronic intake of high-protein diets. Um, and, you know, are you actually making your muscle less sensitive to a normal meal-like amount of protein, that being that 20 grams of protein. So now we got to keep in mind that when you're eating, chronically eating high-protein meals, you are upregulating all these proteolytic enzymes. So then when you try to consume a smaller meal, roughly containing 20 grams of protein, you're going to burn more of those amino acids or waste more of those amino acids than somebody who's been eating a normal amount. Um, so we need to do some more tests as scientists to figure out, okay, what exactly, how is your muscle adapting to these chronically high protein intakes, which are really common in, in the bodybuilding scene, obviously. And you know what, Nick? I think interestingly, I was doing a little literature review a while ago about um, how once you become, for lack of a better word, better at oxidizing excess amino acids, then it'll actually linger for a few days. So you could actually stop eating that high protein diet and your body will continue to quote unquote burn protein. um, Which I think to some lifters is almost a scary notion. Now I doubt it adds up to a whole lot of like body weight, for example, but, but, but at the same time, I think it's very, it just illustrates how adaptable, right? Yeah, it is. And uh, you know, when we give these global, global recommendations, it's very generic. I mean, so, you know, I, if I have to, those are the kind of rec- recommendations I give. But as always, you got to keep in mind, you know, what's the exercise habits of, of an individual? You know, what's their current chronic dietary protein intake? These things all have to be considered um, when trying to develop, you know, what's the maximum amount of protein somebody can eat to, to maximize muscle building throughout the day. We often emphasize on on the show the need, you know, for simple energy intake yeah. to make this all happen. Exactly. Right? So. Exactly. So that's, um, I mean, that's that's where we stand now. So if you're eating for an 80 kilo individual, 20 grams of protein, uh, roughly four to five times a day, provided you're spreading the meals across four hours, you're, in our hands, you're going to be maximizing the response. Gotcha. Okay, um, just moving on and again on our little list here. Um, you know, let's let's get to the ibuprofen thing because last time, uh, like I said, we were sort of uh, left listeners a little bit teased about ibuprofen, and there's some back and forth in sort of the lay, you know, um, publications that it suppresses muscle protein synthesis. And last time you were on, you said that may be true acutely, but in the long term, it may be mildly anabolic. Crappy <laughs> from Ball State University demonstrated after an acute bout of exercise, if subjects consume acetaminophen or ibuprofen, you actually blunt the, the normal obligatory rise in muscle protein synthesis um, after resistance exercise. So using that model I described earlier, that those acute increase, those each acute increase in muscle protein synthesis um, provided you train will accumulate into a, a bigger muscle. So, you know, that data suggested that if you keep blooding those post-exercise increases in muscle protein synthesis, you're actually going to blunt your ability to build muscle protein or muscle hypertrophy. Um, so they followed up with the training study. I was there for some of it. Um, 
So this was again an uh, NIH funded grant with the National Institute of Aging. So it was older subjects. The older subjects came in. They consumed uh, acetaminophen, ibuprofen, or a placebo or a sugar pill. Um, they trained three days a week. I'm not sure. I think it was maybe 10 to 12 weeks, uh, the training duration. I'm not 100% sure how long they trained. But the short end, uh, end of it, after the 12 weeks or of training, we'll just say it was 12 weeks, the individuals in the drug groups, that is those consuming acetaminophen or ibuprofen, um, had an increase in thigh muscle volume or thigh muscle size and also um, muscle strength, which is logical because usually those two line up. Um, so that data, as you mm. summed up, suggested that, wow, these, these drugs, if consumed chronically, are mildly anabolic. And that is the work that Todd um, published, uh, I think, in 2010. Okay. Just this yeah, month. It's, it's and I'm not, I'm not suggesting anybody, no, of course, exactly. go use that's, that's, for off-label reasons. Yeah, right? that was my exact word. That should not be the message for your listeners to right. go out and consume um, cox-inhibiting drugs. But the the important thing is that Todd um, recently just published a paper this month trying to get after the mechanism of how, why is this occurring? And it appears that these subjects in these drugs are upregulating a receptor on their muscle cell, specifically uh, a receptor for PGF2 alpha, which is a prostaglandin known to be involved in regulating muscle protein synthesis. So what these subjects did in these drug groups, upregulated the receptor on their cell membrane of their muscle fiber and uh, basically overcompensated for the drug. So your body is very smart. It realized that, well, we have cost inhibitors in our system. We still want to get a response. So we're going to put a bunch of this receptor on the muscle cell to try to outdo the, uh, the inhibition of the drugs. And so that appears to be the mechanism. It appears that you just overcompensate. Physiology does by increasing the, the cell surface membrane receptor. Oh, right. or PGF2 alpha. So let me ask you, was this a, a just a typical dose, like two ibuprofen, yeah, or was a, this more? Of a, yeah, it was an over-the-counter dose. Yeah, exactly. So it wow, was okay. commonly commonly consumed. Um, again, as that was not that, you know, the short end of it. We they were concerned about, um, you know, okay, when an old, you know, an aging population when they train um, and they consume these drugs, are they interfering with muscle muscle mass? No, they're not. Um, but again, the listeners should not run out and take these cox inhibiting drugs because it does cause some gastric distress. It can lead to ulcers if you're chronically taking these drugs. So absolutely, um, right. That's not the message from that work. Right. Well, you know, you, you and I were talking just a, a few minutes ago about how, you know, once you're middle aged, oftentimes you you'll deload or you'll try to spare your joints. And you know, let's face it. I mean, myself and I know the co-hosts on the show, Phil especially, who's a competitive powerlifter. He's good friends with ibuprofen. Yeah, you know yeah, it's an yeah. it's an effective anti-inflammatory <laughs> exactly. and analgesic and and all that sort of thing. And it's just sort of curious and interesting to think, oh, this might actually it's it's not going to hurt my muscle gains. No, no, yeah. exactly. You know, and Luke uh, Luke Van Loon uh, over here in Maastricht, I wasn't on the study, but he ran a study in aerobic at, uh, endurance trained athletes, actually showing that. Uh, so when you look at some markers of gastric distress, so the athletes who cycled and then after their cycling. Uh, about took these drugs, they actually show some gut damage markers increasing um, how this impacts the subsequent <laughs> intake of food, whether this, you know, inhibits your ability to digest protein and whatnot. Um, we don't know. Uh, but there, you know, there are these negative consequences of these drugs. Um, you know, so at least in these endurance trained athletes, they did have increased gut marker damage. Um, what I, no, that's I, a good point. Gastric bleeding is not something anybody's <laughs> yeah. going to recommend, right? Yeah. Right. But what it means uh, from a practical standpoint, uh, we're not sure, but something is going on from a, a negative standpoint also. Okay. Um, well, it's good to clear that up, especially, like I said, I think maybe next week everyone will um, will dig into that study that Phil was um, mentioning about how there could actually be some uh, detrimental effects to ibuprofen when consumed before exercise as far as gut function. Uh, I, ha I haven't read the paper, so I don't know, but we'll we'll talk about that too. And you know, like Nick's saying, is you know, there's these are uh, th these are drugs with a certain amount of power, and they're going they could be damaging when used wrongly. So anyway, 
Um, okay, quickly then. Um, what about your thoughts on just good old dairy foods versus engineered uh, protein powders? Now, I don't want to be too negative about protein powders. I, I, I think they have a role. You know, it's a way to conveniently carrying around protein, and it's not going to spoil, you know, as readily because it's dry. And there's some good things about whey protein, of course. But I've also seen some data uh, at conferences and published that, you know, just milk or chocolate milk could be the equivalent or even superior um, as far as muscle accretion goes. What are your thoughts on some of that? Yeah, so, you know, in a young, healthy individual like ourselves, Lonnie, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, we can, um, you know, we're still highly sensitive, especially after exercise. you got to keep in mind that your muscle is actually more sensitive to protein intake. Um, so these, you know, these Certain, you know, these certain products that are uh, made that have these really high, high leucine intakes or added branched chain amino acids, um, they're they're really not going to be beneficial. You know, for one, because we're after exercise, we're already highly sensitive to uh, to, to amino acids, or protein. Um, so I would speculate and i and i do this i consume milk after exercise um but uh but of course i i'm not uh, a serious bodybuilder so i don't i don't have any data to suggest that i'm would grow bigger on whey or on milk i mean those are the kind of studies that i would like to perform but it's it's difficult to to, to do those studies um sure. putting milk against against whey um but the short end of it in a young healthy individual uh, I, I always recommend skim milk powder because that's something that's easy to transport. Um, you can buy that at the grocery store. Uh, sometimes it doesn't taste the best, but, uh, you know, it's just powdered skim milk. You can throw that in your protein shaker and shake it up and consume it. Um, and Stu Phillips has the data showing that, you know, individuals who train and drink milk can grow some pretty big muscles, actually, comparable to what I've seen with the uh, – the games after whey protein ingestion um, where maybe some of these blends become more important. And is is, you know, in an aging population where it appears that the sensitive sensitivity to amino acids have decreased. Um, we got some data showing that uh, here with Luke using an intrinsically labeled protein. If subjects consume um, a protein meal that has added branch uh, leucine, actually added leucine, that you're actually incorporating more of the, the, the amino acids in that drink into skeletal muscle protein. Again, that's in an aging population without exercise. Sort of. Right. Now, I also, were you part of the group or are you, I'm sure you're aware, uh, was it Stu that was doing the work with um, low dose, um, low doses of protein with um, added leucine? And getting comparable oh, effects yeah. at least at rest. Yeah, I was on. Yeah, I was on that paper actually. Yeah, okay, I figured you were. Um, yeah, yeah, that's my good friend uh, Ty Tyler Churchward Vinay was the lead author on that. So, um, exactly as you described. So they had it's, it's actually a little tricky to 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 explain, but in general they had three conditions. We had three conditions. One group was simply 25 grams away, so a, a whole intact protein. Um, another condition received 6.25 grams of whey plus added leucine to match the leucine content of that 25 grams of whey. So a small amount of whey plus a, a lot of leucine. And then another condition received uh, 6.25 grams of whey plus all the essentials to match that 25 grams of whey. So basically very little leucine. So you know, if leucine is a principal driver, then you would assume the condition that has very small amounts of leucine would not stimulate muscle protein synthesis. But that's not what we found. We actually found that all three conditions um, at rest stimulated protein synthesis to the same extent. But uh, in an exercise condition, it was the whey protein, so the, the fully intact of 25 grams of whey, that was better at prolonging um, muscle protein synthesis after exercise. So the bottom line is that uh, it's a, a high intact quality protein, uh, in this case it was whey, is is likely better than all, you know, manipulating your your protein blend by trying to throw in single 
amino acids, largely, largely leucine. But in an aging population, again, with no exercise, it, it might be an effective strategy. But that, that kind of work needs to be followed up. That's a good point. So you're not a fan of um, taking branched-chain amino acids or straight leucine no. by themselves? <clears throat> well, no. For one, what happens if you take, a, especially without a meal, when you, when you throw in leucine, without all the other amino acids, you simply deplete the intracellular muscle protein pool of the other amino acids. So you're, you're not, you need all the amino acids to build a functional muscle protein. So by simply adding leucine, okay, you might turn on protein synthesis, but you're going to eventually deplete that pool of all okay, the other functional amino acids. Okay, now Nick, let me, if I can just interject. So intraorgan exchange won't be enough to replete that pool. No, not uh, not not in the data we we have. No, that's that's okay. correct. You actually do see. Uh, I think uh, I, actually I think that Tyler's paper, um, the one where we were describing with the three conditions, if you if you note the uh, intracellular leucine, it's is going down, um, or the uh, some of the other intracellular amino acids are decreased um, in that in the conditions that are receiving only the the high the high leucine. Um, wow! But okay, and I was just just eat drink some milk or eat some you know protein is the short end of it. You know, there's no need uh, eat eat a, a high quality protein. You should be fine because um, I think those branched chain amino acids are quite expensive. If I uh, I, I, I do not buy them, so I don't, I don't know. So I, I would think a more functional approach would just drink a glass of milk or skim milk powder. Okay. And listeners, we're just about out of time, but just to reemphasize, you know, we have a very neutral, you know, non-judgmental sort of approach. I mean, I do think there are some advantages to certain dietary supplements from a convenience and portability point of view and that sort of thing. But uh, Nick, since you're probably not aware, that's really been a theme, I think, over weeks and months, uh, even years on the show is, you know, whole food approach, not because of some vague notion that it's somehow proper, you know, uh, and that supplements are bad. But, you know, here we're getting it from one of the guys who works in the muscle physiology labs directly saying, you know, it'll actually backfire for these reasons. If you try to get too specific, uh, you know, you hear that leucine is anabolic or it triggers muscle protein synthesis. So you overfocus on that. And, you know, so in a way, it's almost like, and we've said this before, homeostasis ruins a lot of this bro science, you know, a lot <laughs> yeah. of this gym science, because the body will autocorrect in some way. Yeah, just, and we're back to eating lots of, we're, we're back to getting an adequate amount of protein, let's say a, a substantial amount, but and then plenty of calories and, you know, varied training loads, yep. right? So, you know, but, pretty simple. But I, I must, you know, with that being said, the leucine content of a meal <laughs> does appear to be important. So oh, sure. kind of stuff right. we, yep. we ha, has not been tested, especially for a vegetarian athlete. Can we add a little extra leucine into like a, a normal amount of soy protein to try to help bring the uh, anabolic effectiveness up of that particular meal? Um so, you know, there might be some p- more work to be done with, you know, how can we manipulate some leucine contents of a, a whole meal? Um, not simply just eating leucine alone, but there there might be some benefits there. Um, still to be confident in it. I think that some, some more work needs to be done in that area, especially in humans. Sounds good. All right. Well, I wanted to thank you because uh, we're just about out of time. So I really appreciate you coming on, especially this time. Yeah, no here. problem, Ronnie. I always enjoy it. Um, if you ever want to have me back, I'm always willing to, to chat uh, to you and, and your listeners. I really appreciate it. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. 
Hey, Iron Radio.org listeners, this is Lonnie Lowry, and I'm just bringing you a sneak peek only for Iron Radio listeners at this point. If you Google CRC Press, Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y, and Protein, you can be some of the first people on the planet to see this book. It's specifically for strength athletes, everything on the safety of high-protein diets, the efficacy, the dosing, the types, practical applications and case studies. This is a textbook. It's not what I would call an industry book. This is not pseudoscience. This is the state-of-the-art science. And if someone wants to critique you on your extra protein intake, this will be something you can hold up and say, this is what the literature says about stressed kidneys or bone loss or gout or dehydration or increased muscle mass over time or leanness or what types are best. This is the ultimate source in one place. Little disclosure here, I do make a single digit percentage of royalties on this book. It's such a low amount, however, obviously I haven't done it for that purpose. I did it because like you, I want to have something I can hold up in one place that's modern literature instead of what a, perhaps a health educator might tell you about the benefits and the potential concerns, if there are any, on ample protein diets specific to a population like ours. Thank you. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.